Fantastic. Okay. <clears throat> All right, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Two Seamer. I am your host, Jimmy Shin, and joined by the co-host, Oliver Jung. How have you been for this week, Oliver? I'm good. How are you, man? It's good to be back. Yeah. What do you know? We're on to the second episode already. <laughs> uh, let's jump right into the news. Uh, last night, Mike fires through a no-hitter. This isn't the first time he's done this, right, Oliver? Yeah, well, I mean, we were talking about this just before we started recording, but Mike Fires has two career complete games. Both of them have been no hitters. So go figure. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we definitely didn't see this coming at all either. Of all people, Mike Fires, the ace of the Oakland Athletics, threw in complete gem, took him 131 pitches. He ought to be really tired after it, though, right? Yeah, I mean, I loved it. It was kind of a throwback to a to a bygone era. No one even hits like 120 pitches anymore, let alone 130. So it's good to see that. Uh, yeah, I don't think any of the managers really allow their pitchers to go that far, right? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because you see that it takes something like a no hitter to to force the manager's hand like that because the same. It was kind of an interesting juxtaposition. I mean, with Hyunjin Ryu throwing that complete game shutout last night as well. Ryu, I believe, only mm. took like 93 pitches. Uh, That's right. And I'd assume that, you know, if Fires hadn't had a no hitter going, you know, he wouldn't have. Even if he was, even if he was still s- spinning a shutout, he wouldn't have gotten an opportunity to finish it off just because of the way modern baseball is. Uh, but he was going for history. And so they gave him a chance, and it worked out well. And even with, even with that no-hitter and nine innings of shutout ball, his ERA is still 5.48. <laughs> well, what's his, what's his whip again right now? His whip is 1.24, so that's actually not bad. Okay, it's so not the great, whip isn't bad. His ERA is high. Yeah. Uh, but this guy also threw a no-hitter against... Who was he even against? I, I just kept getting notifications that Mike Fires threw a no-hitter, but I never yep. bothered to see who he was playing against. No, I mean, it was against the Reds, and full credit to him. Um, it's not like the Reds are, a, are, a t- are titans of baseball, but they have been hot. They've been hitting really well, uh, especially ever since Nick Senzel came up. Uh, hmm. And they, I mean, and also the Giants are kind of baseball's punching bag right now, but... They did really lay the smack down on the Giants in their last series. Uh, I was watching one of the games and finished 12-4. Uh, they pasted Pomeranz for, I think it was seven runs and one and two-thirds. So this is an offense that probably felt like it was rolling, uh, and fires stopped them right in their tracks. So, uh, I don't know. I am I think you would agree with me, but anomaly for sure. But full credit to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a hell of a game. That's true. Uh, also, just because you mentioned on the last podcast about your faith in Jose Peraza, couldn't help but notice in the box scores that he was out of the lineup, replaced by Jose Iglesias. Yeah. I, <laughs> Do you still have faith in Peraza? Do you think he'll still make a comeback? Or I mean, I th- Do you think he's done? I think it's hard to say because it's May. It's early May. We're barely a month into the season. Mm. Um I said buy low on him last week in our little fantasy segment. Uh, I dropped right. him off my fantasy team, so I guess mm-hmm. uh, that kind of contradicts <laughs> what I was saying. Having said that, um, you know, I think 
what's tantalizing about Peraz is his profile, right? He's speedy. Uh, he can he can get he can rack up thirty plus steals. He has that kind of speed, and he showed some pop that he hadn't really displayed earlier in his career last year. So he breaks out to be maybe a 10-15 home run, 30 steal, close to 300 average type guy. Um, and that brings a lot of value, especially in fantasy. Oh, I think you can debate exactly how valuable that is in real life baseball. But at least in fantasy, that's <laughs> that's incredible value. So um, right. I think... I, I still believe that he could bring bring your fantasy team like a good amount of value as the season progresses, but right now he, he really looks completely lost at the plate. Uh, I think his his lineup spot, I mean, like you kind of hinted at, Jimmy, it seems at least a, to a certain extent in jeopardy, and with Scooter Jeanette working his way back slowly, uh, he's going to need to, mm. Peraz is going to pick it up uh, if he wants to kind of stick around, but... Yeah, I think it, from a fantasy perspective right now, uh, you should keep you should still keep your eye on him. But if you cut him right now and drop him to the waiver wire, I don't really know who else in your league is going to be rushing to pick him up, unless you're in an exceptionally deep <laughs> league. So, I think you can probably right. you can probably cut bait with him for now. Just you know, once when he gets hot, if he gets hot, uh, make sure you scoop him right back up. Yeah. Uh, speaking of declining hitters, we didn't have this plan and ta- plan to talk about, but me and you. Us being Koreans, I couldn't help but notice the steep and huge decline of Jung Ho Kang. Have you been following <laughs> this man's unfortunate decline at all? You know, actually, no, because the one Pirates game I've watched this year, Kang and all run. So, <laughs> yeah, that might have been the only one because he's currently hitting. Oh, holy shit. He's uh, hitting 143. 143. Oh, my God. <laughs> that, yeah, that's that's way worse than your. That's almost John Lester level hitting. <laughs> I mean, it's not even the average. I'm, I just opened up his page right now. The guy's striking out in thirty three percent of his at bats. Mm, That's yeah. that is not good. Um, the kid can't even make con- contact. Yeah, it's he, bizarre. The manager said he'll give him faith that he is. He named him the everyday starting third baseman for the Pirates, and a month later, he's no longer in the starting lineup. Colin Warren has won that over. You see. Jung Ho Kang um, kind of make an appearance later on as they get into relievers and they switch pitchers out to replace with Jung Ho Kang. And um, the news that I have on my phone <laughs> eventually just popped up. It says, Inbox, how long will Bucks stick with Kang? That's how bad this guy is. I'm so weird that a guy who actually used to play pretty phenomenally came back two, three years ago and is doing horribly, especially... Because during spring training, this guy was a home run monster. Uh, can't remember the st- exact statistics. I think he hit like eight home runs or something during spring training. But now he's he's really better to play without, I would say. Yeah, well, goes to show you. I'm sure every every fan of every team will, t- will, will tell you that there's a player who lights it up every spring. You know, I mean, as a Yankee fan, yeah. I always think of Greg Bird always hits like 400 in spring training and then by the time the regular season comes around they're either ineffective or hurt or something so as usual this is a this is a topic that's been beaten into the ground across baseball so everyone kind of knows this now but once again it's worth repeating uh spring training statistics don't mean shit (laughs) that's right uh speaking of people getting hurt and maybe coming back 
Shohei Otani has finally recovered from his Tommy John surgery and made his return last night as a designated hitter. Uh, he was slotted in as the third man in the batting order. Uh, went over 4 with a ground out RBI. Uh, I don't think anyone really sees him pitching the season though, right Oliver? Yeah, no, I don't believe so. It is kind of interesting to me. I know nothing about uh, recovery from Tommy John as it pertains to a two-way player. I don't really know if anyone really does. But um, it is interesting to see that uh, his recovery timeline has been pretty consistent uh at like the kind of timeline you would see with a position player uh, recovering from Tommy John and getting ready to return to the lineup. I do have to wonder, um, I know he's not fielding, he's just DHing, but I do have to wonder how much hitting uh, and a full season's worth of hitting, although I assume he'll be held out of the lineup fairly liberally to help his rehab. But I, I do wonder if taking swings like that affects his elbow as a pitcher or not. But, yeah, this is pure spe- right. speculation for me. I, I legitimately have no idea. I legitimately don't have any idea either because he's truly the first of his kind in the modern era. So um, I'm really curious to see what or how he will progress because he had a pretty good season last season. Didn't he hit over uh, 280, I think? Yeah, I mean, he ran, he ran away with the rookie of the year. He was held out of the lineup fairly regularly, obviously, to accommodate his pitching schedule and whatnot, and he still did very well. Uh, I pulled up his numbers just now. 285, 22 home runs, 10 yeah. steals. I mean, in, in, 114, in 114 games. So you extrapolate that. That's, oh, I hate math. Past 30 home runs, wouldn't you say? Uh, this is when you need baseball Around reference because they do these calculations for you. <laughs> let, me, let me pull this up. <laughs> Give me a couple seconds. All right. I haven't taken a math class since junior year of high school. Lucky you. All right. Yeah, so you're right, Jimmy. That's a 34 home run pace over the course of 162 games. So ex- hey. extrapolated across 162 games, uh, Shohei Otani would have had 30, 34 home runs, 15 steals, and 143 hits. I mean, that's a valuable, like, that's a valuable position player in and of itself. Uh, and and his and his pitching numbers were pretty damn impressive too, three point three one ERA uh, across ten starts, four and two, and that's pretty up there. That's definitely above your average, uh, like a third or second string starter, wouldn't you say? Yeah, no, and stru- struck out over a hitter per inning. His strikeouts per nine was eleven on the dot. Uh, yeah, I mean, really, there was nothing. To dislike about this guy his walk rate was a little high but I think you can forgive that considering how effective he was it'll be it'll definitely be interesting to see what his long-term value is in the bigs because again I don't I don't really know how much because if you think about it it's obviously you can't say he wasn't a valuable player and he wasn't an exciting player last season but he had a lighter than average hitting load and a lighter than average pitching load, as you would, I feel like, as you would expect with a two-way player. But then the question is, does that right. does that diminish his value since he's, you know, getting about a little over half the at bats a regular position, a full-time position player would have, and a little less than, and obviously he was hurt for part of the season, but a little less than half of the starts that a regular starting pitcher would have. So. So he might be playing a different um, 
he has too small of a sample size of what you're basically saying. Right, and, and not just a sample size thing. I'm just kind of curious to see how... I, I suppose the question would be, does it diminish his value? Because you can't argue that it's obviously incredibly exciting to have a two-way player like this. I mean, it's just a supernatural, not supernatural, but just a, a very unique feat that we haven't seen in a long time. Or, frankly, that no one alive probably has seen because it's mm. it's been a long <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, no since, one alive. Yeah, so, or at least, you know, you have to be pretty fucking since old. Since Bambino days basically yeah you right? figure more or less so um it's undoubtedly compelling i but in today's age of saber metrics and stuff i do wonder what the i guess kind of analytical value of splitting time like that is it, it could be that it's very high yeah we might have to give that like two or three years yeah to, to really get to know yeah it's possible but yeah but it's certainly exciting to see him back back on the field swinging a bat uh, hopefully it's not too long before he's throwing off a mound again. Although, like you said, we probably have to wait till next season for that. In other news, and the last news that we have for today, a lot of closer shakeups and mix-ups. Um, Julio Urias closed for the Dodgers, uh, I think, last night. Just went for an inning. But of all, of all people in the bullpen, Urias came out to close. That kind of surprised me. Um, Matt Barnes closed the game last night. Oh, so Urias was actually two two games ago. But yeah, Matt Barnes closed instead of Ryan Brazier. Ryan Brazier came out in the eighth. Uh, struggled again. So he was taken out after only getting two outs. Uh, Matt Barnes came out for a four-out save. Matt Barnes, I feel, has always been the more dominant pitcher uh, when compared to Ryan Brazier. Uh, so that was... Maybe something that was coming, and I also noticed, because I used to have A.J. Minter on my fantasy team, that this guy has basically, well, while not definitively, lost his job as a closer. What was his name, Oliver? Luke Luke Jackson, right? I believe so. Yeah, it's, a, it's really a bunch of, I mean, I think the Braves are a good team, but it really is, it does kind of feel like a bunch of no-names running around their bullpen right now. Um you, you do kind of wonder if they're serious about contending, what's taking them so long to give Kimbrell a call. Yeah, I was just about to bring that up because we have Kimbrell, who doesn't have a team, and it's been a month. We have Dallas Keuchel, who also doesn't have a team. And I know James Shields is also not at their caliber, but James Shields is also a free agent that anyone could sign for a cheaper price if you're in desperate need of a starter. But no, yeah, none I, of them are going. Yeah, you know, James Shields is an interesting... I don't know exactly how interested people would be in listening to me waxing poetic about James Shields at this point, but <laughs> I do kind of have a soft spot for him because I think he's kind of a... I don't know what the right word is. It's just he's kind of a... He brings value of a bygone era because this guy has pitched over 200 innings. Mm. He pitched 204 innings last year. Uh, he pitched... he. A relatively light workload in 2016 he was hurt in 2017 but in 2016 he had 181 innings and then before that he had one two three four five six seven eight nine consecutive seasons of over 200 innings it's just hard to find that kind of durability in today's day and age and, and shields again he wasn't even really good he led the american league he might have led the major leagues in losses last year. He was seven and sixteen. <laughs> that doesn't ERA surprise me at all. And a half. Yeah, and he always gave up a ton of home runs. 
gave up 34 homers last year. You know, so obviously I'm not saying he's going to give you 200 great innings, but he gives you 200 innings, which I think is there's something to be said for that where, right. you know, if you're, te- if, if you're on a day when your bullpen really needs a break and you have a pitcher out there who's being remarkably inefficient and bad and he gives up five, five runs over four innings and then you have to rely on your bullpen for more than half the game, it would be nice if a pitcher could come out and give up the same five, six runs but go seven innings. Exactly, you know? like a filler guy. Yeah, and it's not sexy, but <laughs> it, cer- it certainly brings value over the over the long haul of a 162-game season. So I'm curious why no team has really even like signed him on, a, on the type of deal that the Yankees gave uh, Gio Gonzalez earlier before releasing him in the sense that just kind of on a minor league uh, prove-it-slash-depth contract. Yeah. Um, you know, because this guy's someone who can eat up innings for you. And kind of same goes for Big Sexy. Bartolo Colon's still out there without a team. Well, and actually, yeah, Bartolo Colon, that guy is full of surprises. I, don't, I, won't, I can't say with confidence what kind of a value he would bring to any team. He's just a box full of surprises, I feel like. But he's pretty old, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's in his mid-40s now. He, he's got to be like 46 or something. Maybe they should bring uh, Bartolo Colon to the Braves to close for them. <laughs> that would be ah, something. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's done everything else, right? Yeah, so he's 45, about to turn 46. But yeah, I mean, obviously he's not the innings eater that James Shields is, but <laughs> his numbers haven't been great in recent years, but he's only two seasons removed from having 15 wins and a 3.43 ERA with the Mets. So, yeah, I suppose it's something. <laughs> I, I don't know, I... I think it's, again, like someone who is a known quantity. I, it's not like I know exactly what all the starting rotations around the league look like, but you figure you could slot in for someone. Yeah. Again, it's, it's some kind of value he would bring for a very cheap price, I reckon. So I actually yeah. wanted to touch on uh, what Cora has done with the Red Sox rotation. I don't know if you would... Like, I noticed this because I'm a Red Sox fan. I don't know if you know about this but right now with david price on the dl and um with a quote-unquote lack of starters hector Velasquez has come out and started for the red sox for right. i think two three games now but he's not really starting for the red sox and what i mean by that right it, he comes out he pitches three innings and then he hands it off to another reliever for three innings the game turns around into a as if a starter came out and gave them good six solid innings and the relievers just take it on from there. I think what Cora shows is a reliever, like a game solely based on relievers and no starters and having it work. Because Michael Walton is the guy who pitches after uh, Hector Velasquez. And this guy has been phenomenal. This guy is barely giving up any runs. Uh, whenever he's out, I feel pretty confident that the opposition's not going to score at all. I don't know. I just found it so interesting that Cora learned to break down the workload of one starting pitcher into two relievers and create the uh, create the same value out of it. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think part part of it is him his hand being forced because the Red Sox don't have too much starting pitching depth right now. Right. Uh, with Price, like you said, on the shelf, Evaldi's been on the shelf since a couple weeks ago, mm. and they they don't have that many reinforcements in the minors. I believe Brian Johnson even 
is nursing an injury right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly core has been effective in deploying that Velasquez Walden combination, like you said, and it's kind of piggybacking off the opener idea that the Rays started last year. Um, and I, I suppose the opener concept was just based off the old idea of just having a bullpen day. I think that's mm. what they used to call it. Now they call it, they call them openers. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it makes sense from a logical standpoint. Um, relievers are generally more effective than starters. They don't need to turn over the lineup multiple times. They don't need to really strategize in terms of using their arsenal. They can attack hitters and just go all out for as long as they can uh, for a short period of time and then turn things over. Um, so yeah, it's it's smart. It's just a question at this point of sustainability. If you put that on, if you put that kind of workload on your bullpen on a consistent basis, then are you risking having a lot of tired arms in there down the stretch? Yeah, actually, you remember wondering as you do while <laughs> while I was just lying down is what if we had a team full of closer quality pitchers, no starters just closer quality relievers to pitch one inning and you'd have nine guys go technically that wouldn't that mean that you would have nine solid innings theoretically because you're just breaking the game down right and fair enough but but the thing is if you think about it from a math perspective right generally teams the i believe like the biggest bullpen that teams will generally carry is seven guys maybe eight um, and then plus obviously your five starters. So then if you got rid of all your starters and replaced them with relievers, so then you had about a 12 person pitching staff, right? That would still be very difficult to juggle because even if you got two innings out of each guy, so say you needed four, maybe five, let's, let's say four, you need four pitchers per game. Mm-hmm. Then that means you use you have to deploy what would that be like a third of your pitching staff on any given day that's true <laughs> which i think is is difficult to keep up um just over the course of a season i mean you could cycle guys in from triple a and stuff you know to keep all the arms fresh and whatnot but right you would need in that case you would need to have one hell of an organization in terms of depth uh because you would need According to that straight, because you you said closer level, closer quality arms, which makes sense. But mm-hmm. then that means you would need around what twenty closer quality arms in your organization. <laughs> yeah, which I feel like is just difficult to to pull off. That's yeah. That's yeah. Okay, you're right. Mathematically and realistically speaking, I was just still wondering. But the topic of closers does lead us to our discussion of the day. Which is our is the role of closer uh, too esteemed? Are saves a non-relevant, non-relevant, irrelevant statistic in the game of baseball? Uh, Oliver, can I hear your take on this? I'm actually interested to hear your take on this, considering. I mean, I think you're in an interesting uh, position in terms of your perspective, Jimmy, because as a Red Sox fan, you're used to. I know you were a huge fan of Craig Kimbrell uh, when was. he was with the Red Sox. Yeah. Um, Having said that, your team is just coming off a season in which Kimbrell did have a great year, and he had a great career with the Red Sox, but yeah. he was arguably their weakest link come the postseason. Yeah. <laughs> and in the deciding game, it wasn't 
Craig Kimbrell, but Chris Sale uh, yeah. pitching the final innings and closing out that game. So I, I feel like I could see you landing on either side of this fence. So I, I hate I hate to pass off the question back to you, but I kind of want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, no, that's that's completely fair. Um, and as we discussed before the podcast, uh, I really land on the yes and the no, but more uh, more yes on the terms of closers are too esteemed. They're not they're not as great as the game of baseball makes them out to be, because maiming someone your closer um, that gives that reliever a confidence boost, um, or it could give them extra pressure. It's really I mean, it's like the Captain America serum. It makes those who are tough and uh, really talented. It it brings the best out of them. It locks them in the zone, uh, playoff mode per se. Or if they're weak, they're young, they're they're not too stable. Um, they're not secure with the stuff they have. It just puts more pressure on them and it breaks them. Naming someone closer is just like giving the captain band in a game of soccer match or football in Europe. It means it just means that you're the best of the pack of the reliever side and you're supposed to lead them. Doesn't really mean that you're where am I going with this? It just means that you're taking out taking care of the ninth inning. Yeah, that's fair. I mean you're yeah, you're saying that it's kind of a a mostly I don't know if symbolic honors the right the right way to put that it because they do have it exactly, a, that ha- I would say. Right. I mean, like, you know, because there is still a defined role uh, for a quote, like a traditional closer. But having said that, I I did really like that analogy you drew with the Captain America serum because, Mm. yeah, I mean, like it it makes the like if you just don't have the mental makeup to handle, you know, getting key outs, then it kind of like, you know, breaks your back. It causes them to melt down. But the best pitchers thrive in those kinds of roles. Exactly. Um, but I think in a way that that makes that raises an interesting question for the other side in the sense that, like, yes, if you pick the wrong guys, you're defined closer, you're only making your team worse. But is it worth going through that effort to see who can see if you can find that guy who actually if you bestow the closer title upon them, then they suddenly become they take things up to a new level. Right. So is it worth trying to is it worth keeping the, the closer role around to try to find that guy who will truly grab it by the horns and become that stud at the back end of your bullpen. Well, here's something I'd say is, I mean, obviously I'm against it, but the argument for it would be that just as you mentioned, Craig Kimbrell last season, uh, obviously a great closer, great reliever, but the moment you put him in a tie situation, we're in a non-save situation. This guy was all over the place. Lost his command. The knuckle curve flew everywhere. Wild pitches. It was a disaster. But once you put him in a save situation. Where a one-run lead. This guy brought his stuff. And completely blew guys away. Just striking striking out the side. Is what you usually see. In a tough situation like that. Usually. But for some reason. When the stakes are not at hand. Kimbrell lost the game. And why? Because he's just not locked into the zone. Because he's not, quote-unquote, the closer in that moment. And I guess some right. pitchers really need it. Really need that extra yeah, kick. I'm, yeah, I mean, that, that's that been a phenomenon, like, for many years, actually, that closers just... I mean, it's almost like a safe situation is their drug. They just can't really get it up. Like, 
when if it's not a save situation. You know, it's I mean, weirdly enough, I mean, Mariano Rivera, greatest closer of all time, uh, first unanimous Hall of Famer ever. And even he and I don't really know if the the numbers legitimately back this up. But I remember as Yankee fans, that was always part of the kind of weird psyche or the weird mentality of or not mentality. The perception of him was that you put him in a non-safe situation, all of a sudden he's not automatic. Because in safe situations, he was truly, like, it's even it's even easier to appreciate now that he's gone. It's like there's no one like him that did it when in a close game he would just oh. shut guys right down. But, yeah, if you put him in a non-safe situation, all of a sudden he didn't look like Mo, um, or at least it's it seemed more likely that he would struggle. Uh, right. So, yeah, it's true. Like, I think that raises the question again. If you didn't have defined, if defined closers didn't exist, would we have never seen the rise of Mariano Rivera? Exactly. That could be the argument. And just to really rub it into you, remember the 2004 ALCS championship, Mariano Rivera came up in a game four at Fenway. And you saw what the Red Sox did. They, in not the ninth inning is when they bring everything out. It's when they really try literally everything in the playbook to try to flip the game from the losing side. Guy, uh, how'd it go? I think someone took a walk and they replaced him with a pinch runner. Dave Roberts, right? <laughs> the current LA, uh, LA Dodgers coach. Um, they put him on. We have they to made talk him about run. This. Yeah. That's. <laughs> They really bring them all out. And who else would you have had on the mound aside from Mariano Rivera? Like, results... Let's not think about the results for a second. There is no one else that you would want in the ninth inning than Mariano Rivera. Because that's when everyone tries. There's so many variables that'll come at you. Even if it's the bottom of the batting order. So, one could argue that the closer is there to deal with all the variables and the switching conditions to persevere through all of that is the closer because ninth inning is when things get whack. But that's not yeah. enough for me to be convinced that the closer role is as important as people make it out to be. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you look at the current bullpen ERAs in the majors and out of the top, the top five teams, I'm actually kind of shocked by this, at who's at number two but the Astros are number one the Blue Jays are number two what? and the Giants Indians and then Rays um so initially I was thinking well there you go like four out of the top five teams have very defined closers so possibly you know the kind of rising tide and raises all ships mentality if you have a stud closer who's doing mm-hmm. his job perhaps yeah. that causes the rest of the bullpen to perform but that's what I thought but <laughs> if you look at the bottom, if if you look at the bottom bullpen ERAs, yeah, in the majors, the Nats are dead last. Then the Orioles, the Marlins, the Tigers, and then the Royals and the Mets. Okay, so <laughs> so obviously you have more committees there. Uh, the Orioles are not are not a full on committee, but they do mix and match a little bit. Uh, right. The, same, the Royal the Royals are a full on committee. Um, and the Marlins, I believe, kind of go back and forth. But having said that, most of these teams have defined closures too. The Nationals are dead last, and they have a completely locked-in closer in Sean Doolittle. Yeah. Um, and 
actually and, Marlins and the Mets at twenty five have it too. Yeah, and the Marlins have Sergio Romo as I think I'm pretty sure he's set as the closer too. Yeah, and Shane Green for the Tigers is set. Yeah. Um, so I mean, and even the Orioles, the, I said they were a committee, but Michael Givens seems to be getting the bulk of the save chances. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, so there there goes that initial argument that I had after seeing that top five because um, it I don't really it doesn't really seem like having a defined closer really helps your bullpen as a whole. Not necessarily, yeah, because I guess this is the difference. Some people are locked into the closer role because they have the experience. Uh, they have the complete trust of their manager and the team and the fans. They can't imagine anyone else as a closer, per se. Whereas, like as we dis- discussed so many times earlier, um, maybe not the best example, but say Atlanta Braves, some, some closers are placed into that role out of need just because sure. they're better than the other shitty guys that they have. And that's right. completely different. That's a completely different scale that they're playing on. One is a superstar, and the other is just, well, you're just well, the best that we got. <laughs> and right. that could affect the leadership. As I said with the captain's band, um, some closers might have that leadership. Like like, like having Mark Melanson be your closer, um, even if he sucks, might bring more morale to the team Whereas having, what what was his name, Luke Jackson as a closer, it's just you're competing every day. That's not going to bring any leadership into the clubhouse. No, I think it's, and it's fair. And, you know, because also if you look at the all-time saves leaders and you look at the active saves leaders in the majors, um, there are no bad relievers on this list. I mean, okay, well, that's not necessarily true. Like, Fernando Rodney's currently the active leader in saves, and obviously he stinks now. But... He had a he had a long career as a very good closer, mm. um, and you know, I think if you rack up a large number of saves, it's pretty safe to say that you have been a very effective pitcher um, throughout your career. Yeah. Um, having said that, like you were saying, I think there's something to be said for if you have a guy that is a proven quantity in the ninth inning, and he he thrives off of that closer mentality, then it's, you shouldn't go out of your way to eliminate the closer role if that's what fits the guy best. But yeah, if you're in a full-on bullpen by committee, no one's proven themselves situation, then yeah, what's the need of going out of your way to name a closer if the guy isn't ready? Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Uh, speaking of closers, though, another thing that we could talk about is the saves, right? Are saves a relevant statistic? Because don't a lot of closers argue, um, you know, when they go into, say, arbitration? Am I saying that right? Arbitration? Yeah, arbitration. Or when they're negotiating salary or contracts, they they will probably bring up how many saves they had. And a lot of analyzers and uh, sports uh, editorials, articles, will say that this guy has been an amazing reliever slash closer this season because he's had like 42 saves and well before I say what I think what are your thoughts on saves being a relevant enough statistic to make legitimate logical arguments yeah I mean I think it's as a Yankee fan I remember when um 
when Batances went went through this, when Dallin Batances went through this a couple years ago in arbitration. Um, he was one of the best relievers in baseball, it was clear, but he didn't have that many saves because he was behind Chapman right. uh, for the most part. And and even I, I believe it was, well, now I'm forgetting who came before Chapman closing for the Yankees. might have been David Robertson. Uh, but so, yeah, just Patantis didn't have that many saves. So they went into the arbitration hearing, and apparently Yankee management just ripped him a new one saying, Don Patantis is good, but he's not a closer. Therefore, we shouldn't give him closer money, which Oof. seemed like kind of an absurd argument. Uh, <laughs> you know, because of, just because of his sheer dominance during that time span. But so in that sense, I think it shows that saves are at the very least, an imperfect statistic uh, mm. in the sense, it, you know, just because you don't have saves doesn't mean that you're not one of the best in the business. Having said that, I think there is something to be said for the save statistic in the sense that, again, it's an imperfect statistic, but no reliever that racks up a bunch of saves is bad. Like, if right. you look at this list, <laughs> I mean, it, there, there, is, there are a number of questionable guys like, I look down this list, and you see, like, Addison Reed has 125 saves. He is the 14th highest active player in terms mm-hmm. of saves right now. And he, you know, I don't think there's ever been a point when Addison Reed was truly a dominant reliever. No. But but I think to a certain extent, saves are a good measurement of Having a lot of saves generally means you're a good pitcher. Let me put it that way. There is, a, there is a reflection to that. I think it's a sim, it's a similar discussion as people have to wins to these days. You yeah. know when they say wins are overrated, and again, it's fair because they're, you know, saves and wins are both st- statistics that actually strangely enough are largely out of the pitcher's control like even as a closer if you come in but it's a four-run ball game then you're not going to get the save even if you manage to close it out and if even if you manage to close out a huge game that had a lot of pressure and probably added a lot of value to your team you're not going to have a save but if you come in to a three-run ball game or even you know if you come in early in the eighth inning you get one out, and then your team scores you 10 more runs, and then in the ninth inning, you're actually pitching in an 11-run game or whatever, You would, st- and you finish it out, you would still get the save, yeah, so that yeah. would be a little misleading there. Yeah, you could strike out George Springer, Jose Altuve, Carlos Correa with nine pitches, and you, you could still not get a save, but that's a, an amazing feat that you <laughs> achieved as a reliever. But you would get no credit right. for it in terms of the saves, right? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's a lot of it's out of your control. But having said that, with the with wins, it's the same thing. Any like if you if you take a look at the active wins leaders in in the MLB right now, there are no bad pitchers on that list. So if you have a lot of wins, even though it's again, it's an imperfect statistic. Odds are you've been a very effective pitcher for a long time. And I think the same thing goes for saves. Right. Oh, didn't. Didn't Rick Porcello win the Cy Young Award, I think, like, three seasons ago? Because, because well, everyone sucked that, <laughs> that season. But also because Rick Porcello just happened to have more wins. Than, yeah, he had tw- I, think, I mean, everyone. he had 22 wins. Yeah, he had 22 that, wins. But he also wasn't, I mean, like, uh, like, an elite ace pitcher. 
I think the argument could have been made that there are other aces that could have deserved it, but Rick Porcello had 22 wins, and that's what got him the Cy Young Award above everyone else. Right, but I think, again, there's something to be said for that, because I think, what's a pitcher's job when he takes the mound? Or not away. a pitcher's job, I suppose, a starter's job. Yeah, a starter's job is to give his team length and to be on the mound and put his to, to be on the mound and put his team in a position to win. That's true. And if you if you got twenty two wins, it means that every single time you took the mound, you gave your team a chance to win. He he was twenty two and four, right? And his he had a three point one five ERA. It's not like his numbers okay. were bad. Never mind. <laughs> you know and I think I'm biased he, because I'm a Red Sox fan. I just see him getting blown up all the time. Where else? Yeah, worry. That's I, what I'm used to. I mean, he, you know, his strikeout to walk ratio red, red led the majors. Uh, he was barely walking anyone. Gave up very few home runs. Remarkably efficient. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, to me, I think it's what what more can you ask for? Because it's again, it's he's he was just doing his job, and he did his job better than anyone else in baseball because his team won or he, I don't even know I don't know what the Red Sox record was whenever he started but I know that out of his 33 starts 22 of them he was he left the mound with a lead right, right? And, right. and I think there's something to be said for that yeah that's, you know if that's fair the, the Red Sox stake him a two a two run lead before he even takes the mound okay like but you have to give him credit for coming out with that lead and not coughing it up and just holding steady and passing and giving the team length and passing it off to a strong bullpen. Yeah. Strong again, strong bullpen. <laughs> a lot of that is credited to saves, too, I guess. Could have went in there with a nine no lead, you come out as a starter, uh, they give up like the seventh inning man could give up seven runs. Uh, it's all up to the saves guy, the closer again. Uh, this is this is why the major leagues can't make up their minds about this and why there's a perennial discussion about the role of closers and saves is because no one can make a definitive <laughs> definitive uh, conclusion about this. They can't make a verdict. Like It's either black or white. Um, it's not. There's so many different factors about it that no one has the guts and the brains, I guess, to completely decipher it. To a certain extent, I don't want to like blow this like way way up in terms of get it to a way to a, too big of a discussion, but I I do think that to a certain extent it's just it's another element of just pretty much all baseball stats are imperfect, right? So you have <laughs> to you have to glean the information that's you, you can't overread into a statistic. A statistic represents just a certain figure in terms of like you can glean a certain amount of information from a statistic uh but don't you shouldn't draw conclusions that aren't there right right? so rick porcello getting 22 wins meant he consistently put his team in a position to win it and that's pretty much all it means right? right it doesn't necessarily mean that he was the most dominant pitcher in baseball just because he you know, it doesn't mean that he even won his team the most games, right? It, right. It doesn't mean these, but it's it's easy to make that logical leap, even though it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that. I think say, uh, going back to saves, it's kind of the same thing. You know, you lead the majors in saves, it means that you were good at finishing out close ball games. It doesn't necessarily mean 
that you were the best at, you know, kind of putting out fires or facing the biggest, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean he was that, cl- that specific pitcher who led the league in saves would be the guy you would want uh, facing the most dangerous part of a given lineup. Uh, maybe he's not the guy you would want running in there when there are men on base. Uh, you know, there are all, they're all these different conclusions that you can't draw from hmm. saves. But I think if you just take it at face value and kind of accept the limits within the statistic, then it can be useful. Or at least that's my opinion. Well, I guess that's our conclusion because our time is up. Uh, thanks for thanks for joining us on the second episode of Two Seamer. Uh, we have delved into the question of whether the closer role is too esteemed and saves being a relevant statistic next week we'll come at you with a new topic uh hope to see you next week thanks for being on this again oliver although it's yeah this time really flew by man yeah Yeah. (laughs) but thank regardless thanks for having me it's been a pleasure yes it's a pleasure here as well all right we'll see you guys next week